1: Welcome to the New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ediza Prosperiti. Today, I will be talking to Professor Usman Khan about the new volume that he has edited called Islamic Scholarship in Africa, New Directions and Global Contexts. Islamic Scholarship in Africa has just been published in spring 2021 by James Curry as part of the Religion in Transforming Africa series. The volume is coming out contemporaneously in French, titled Érudition Islamique en Afrique, Nouvelle Piste de Recherche et Contexte Mondial, which is published by Dakar Sardis. And Sardis will be publishing paperback versions of both English and French. Ousman is the Prince Al-Walid Bintalal Professor of Contemporary Islamic Religion and Society at the Harvard Divinity School. He's the author of numerous works, including 2016's Beyond Timbuktu, An Intellectual History of Muslim West Africa. Uswan, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you for inviting me, Elisa.
1: It's really an honor and a pleasure. And I know that you addressed this at length in um, Beyond Timbuktu, and if anyone's interested, they can pick it up. Um, You have such a fascinating personal history. I wonder if you could uh, tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and where you come from, and how you became drawn to the world of scholarship.
0: Sure. I was born in Senegal, and I grew up there, received uh, primary and secondary education in public schools in Senegal in the French language. But simultaneously, I also attended Quranic school, and. uh, received also high Islamic education. So, um, after completing secondary school in Senegal, I relocated to France, where I studied uh, uh, political science and Middle Eastern studies, and I received my PhD from Sciences Po Paris in 1993. And I also studied uh high islamic education received a master's degree uh, in high islamic education so uh, after receiving my phd i returned to senegal where i taught at the Université gaston berger de saint louis for nine years almost ten where i was a professor or assistant professor of uh, political science and uh, I left Senegal in uh, 2000, spent one year at Yale as a postdoc at the program of uh, program in agrarian studies, then moved to Columbia University, where I was appointed uh, associate professor of uh, international and public affairs. And I taught 10 years at Columbia. Uh, and I left Columbia in 2012 to Harvard, where I am now a professor of contemporary Islamic religion and society. And uh, most of my research now, my research and teaching is focused on uh, Islamic intellectual history, especially Islamic intellectual history in Africa. So uh, you mentioned my book, Beyond Tumbuktu, published 2016 uh, and in French as "Au-delà de Tombouctou érudition islamique uh, et histoire intellectuelle and Afrique subsaharienne so uh, i wrote beyond timbuktu because i wanted to tell a story of islamic erudition in africa which was unknown to many uh, europhone intellectuals to many African intellectuals educated in European languages, such as French, English, and Portuguese, who many of whom have no idea of how old this uh, intellectual tradition is, and how uh, important is the contribution of Africans to uh, the Islamic intellectual tradition. You know, in Freetown, Sierra Leone, the Church Missionary Society created Fura Bay College in 1827 as the first college to offer instruction in European languages in West Africa. But at that time, several Islamic uh, centers of learning existed. And um, in Timbuktu, in Gao, in Jene, in Pirsanyohor in Senegal, in Kano in Burno, and in so many other places. And Africans have been uh, traveling to study and teach all over the world for several centuries. And that part of the story of uh, Islamic erudition in Africa was unknown to most uh, Europhone intellectuals. And that was the reason of my writing Uh, beyond Timbuktu, an intellectual history of Muslim West Africa.
1: Yeah, I believe you refer to, um, you know, Fora Bay, Sierra Leone was just an island in a sea of higher education institutions in in the Islamic world. And I think this kind of reframing um, is is absolutely foundational uh, to African studies. So you you gave us um, your um, intellectual uh, academic journey, but there's also a parallel journey uh, that you refer to in Beyond Timbuktu that starts in Kaolak.
0: Right. My mother uh, is the daughter of Sheikh Ibrahim Nyas, who is one of the most uh, prolific uh, scholars, uh, Islamic scholars and influential Sufi leaders in the contemporary world. His following runs in the millions, if not the tens of millions. And uh, Kaulak is the city which he founded in uh, 1929, Medina Kaulak, sorry, not Kaulak, Medina Kaulak, which is a a city uh, in the suburbs of Kaulak, and which has become a major center, spiritual center, center for pilgrimage and learning. And uh, my mother, who also is a scholar of her own right, she passed away uh, in 2000, in, in uh, 2020, December 2020. But she is considered one of the most influential also edu- Islamic educators in Africa. She, her name is Sheikha Mariam Ibrahim. Yes, she has established many, many schools trained thousands of uh, people in a career which spans a period of 6 to 7 decades so i was exposed to that story to kaulak to uh, to the t- tijaniyya tariqa to Tijaniya sufi order and to you know islamic erudition and when i went to publish to public schools and engage in conversation with uh you know other the students who are only trained in the you know european languages i realized uh, the disconnect you know between uh, their uh, knowledge of uh, islamic of of african erudition and 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 the reality that they there is a lot that they didn't know uh, because they believe that you know the history of uh, education or formal education in africa starts with colonialism and i think that was a very wrong assumption because for uh centuries africans have been participant in the production of islamic knowledge they have written in arabic uh, they have also written in ajami ajami meanings using the arabic script in order to Uh, transcribe African languages, and there is an attested usages of Ajemi in uh, 80 African languages, you know, so which means that the history of erudition, the history of sophisticated knowledge transmission, by no means started with European colonialism, by no means started with the introduction of the colonial uh, school system and its pedagogy.
1: We'll open um, this edited volume that we're discussing, Islamic Scholarship in Africa, with um, with an anecdote um, in the words of your grandfather.
0: Right, he uh, performed the pilgrimage to Mecca for the first time in 1937, and he was received together with other 16 scholars from different Muslim countries by King Saud of Saudi Arabia and. Uh, uh the story he tells is that he when he spoke he impressed the audience so much that uh, one of the scholars wanted to know where he lived in egypt and asked him where do you live in egypt he said i have never been to egypt and then the scholar was very uh, surprised you know how this black person who has never been to egypt could could be speak uh, could be so 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 learn And he asked him, uh, where did you study? He said, I studied with my father. He said, so when did your father graduate from Al-Azhar University? He said, my uh, father never attended uh, Al-Azhar or any other uh, school anywhere in the world. He studied only with, uh, with, with his father. So he was surprised. But that he or his father, for that matter, acquired sophisticated Islamic education in Africa that stands to reason, as I said, because before the erection of colonial boundaries, texts and scholars circulated all over the world, so that any text could be taught anywhere in the world, at least in the Islamic world. Pilgrimage was uh, imp- uh, was uh, uh, an important uh, part of uh, the. Uh, of the process of learning because scholars they travel uh, not just to perform the pilgrimage but also to study or to teach in centers of learnings along the way to the pilgrimage so therefore before the erection of colonial boundaries you know uh, scholars traveled uh, in many parts of the muslim world they they exchange uh knowledge and books also circulated so that they could be taught anywhere. And if you look at the core curriculum of most of the schools, you will see that the the texts that they were studying and teaching were the same. And because people could travel to the pilgrimage and stop in many centers of learning along the way, they will bring back to Africa texts written by scholars from all over the world, and so this is evidence that Africans have long been part of a global network of intellectual exchange, African Muslims.
1: You talk in Beyond Timbuktu about how you you grew up so connected to and immersed in this broad intellectual network that transcended. Um, what you call your parochial identities in many ways, and that this is such a, a long-standing tradition that had been so marginalized and sidelined by the colonial library and, and its epistemologies. And I, I wonder, and I don't mean this at all in any reductive way, but how much of the effort, the intellectual effort behind, behind Beyond Timbuktu and, and your work, is about writing a history in which you recognize yourself and your family's story.
0: Uh, I think uh, what I try to do, also, you are quite right, is to tell the uh, the story of uh, uh, of my family, and you know, for generations. But 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 but, but because my family. Uh, is one of the scholarly lineages of very, you know, old scholarly lineages going back to several um, centuries, to at least three centuries, you know, and uh, I, uh, th- I tried by, you know, writing these books and referring of, often to my uh, to my family to tell a story which by no means means is only the story of my family but the story of you know uh of islamic erudition in africa and how it was transformed so in beyond timbuktu i explain uh uh, you know how the school created by my mother which initially was only a quranic school in the yard of our house after six decades was transformed to to become a network of schools mirroring very much how uh, Islamic education was was, uh, transformed uh, after colonialism, with the encounter of colonialism. Initially, there were only Quranic schools and high Islamic education. But later on, with uh, the transformation that took place during the colonial period, new types of schools named as Franco-Arab, or or Islamia in the the francophone-English speaking Countries of West Africa were created, and these combined uh, traditional Quranic Islamic education with uh, some study of uh, Western languages and, and and subjects, so-called secular subjects. Uh, you know that was one aspect of the transformation, and there also existed uh, you know schools that operated uniquely or only in uh in, in Arabic. So I, I show that the how the school systems created by my mother, how it was transformed from from being initially only Quranic school to later being you know Franco-Arab and at the same time only Arabic shows you know the transformation that occurred during uh colonial period the colonial period you see and and this these
1: um traditions of knowledge, epistemologies that in the colonial mind frame have been separated on on the ground in people's lived experiences. There's no definitive choice. You know, as as you say, it's people imbricate what um, different ways of knowing and different intellectual traditions. And it's been a false project to, to separate them out. And This is so clear when you talk about in the beginning of the edited volume, how you were just trying to get some books for for your class, Islam in Africa, at one of the best resource libraries in the world, and it posed such a challenge.
0: Yes, indeed. Uh, When I was appointed uh, to the uh, Divinity School, one of the first courses that I taught was readings in the Islamic archives of Africa, uh, which uh, consisted of, uh, you know, reading texts written in Arabic by West African sculpts, but uh, the librarian of the divinity school could not order those books because he said, you know, uh, he does not know Arabic and has no expertise in Islamic, in Islamic studies. So he referred me to the librarian of the you know, Middle Eastern libraries, you know, at the Weiner Library in Harvard, but he could not order Arabic books from West Africa because it was not his field. You know, he specialized in the Middle East and in uh, North Africa, but referred me to the librarian of African studies who could not order Arabic books for me because uh, she specialized in sub-Saharan Africa. Things have changed now, you know, but the division of labor in the academy made it very difficult for people to study, uh, uh, you know, Islam in Africa or Islamic intellectual uh, tradition in Africa. So so finally I got the books because the dean used his discretionary funds in order to order those books for me. But the division of labor, you know, between uh, Middle Eastern and sub-Saharan uh, really uh, made it impossible for me or before me for uh, students who were uh, there at Harvard studying Islam in Africa to get those books. And uh, and that balkanization of Sub-Saharan Africa is what I try to challenge in my work and in my, you know to show that uh, North and West Africa have uh, have been uh, you know. Uh, Connected and have exchanged for uh, for centuries, and the Saharan desert was by no means a desert separating these two regions. Uh, so um, they uh, the the relations between North and Sub-Saharan Africa at times were very violent, you know, uh, but at times also they were very peaceful. You know, it involved uh, they involved the slave trade the Oriental slave trade, uh, war, conquest, but they also involved diplomacy and peaceful spiritual and intellectual exchanges. And I felt that that part of the story was not uh, uh, known to many people, partly because they didn't know Arabic, but also partly because of the, uh, you know, of the division of labor separating North Africa from Sub-Saharan Africa. And usually, you know, African studies uh, consisted mostly in the study of African religion, not not, not Islam. Whereas Islamic studies specialized more on the Middle East and North Africa, so that most experts of Islamic studies would have little interest in Islam in Africa uh, and or even engage, uh, you know, the literature produced by scholars working on Islam in Africa. So yeah, I I think that that division of labor was a, in the academy was a real problem, but you know, uh, the good news is that things are changing now and more and more uh, scholars of Islam in Africa are being appointed in major universities and they are also uh, publishing books in major university press and their work now is being uh, visible uh, in, in, in the large field of Islamic studies, and that was one of the greatest challenges that we, we we face. Really, people working on Islam in Africa.
1: Yeah, the the first part of this edited volume is really devoted to, um, to focusing on this history of 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 these global trans-Saharan um, exchanges of knowledge and and really centering Black and sub-Saharan scholars. As not junior partners, as you say in these exchanges, but very much active and um, authoritative
0: um, right. agents. Indeed.
1: and i wondered, I wondered if you could speak a little bit about uh, you know the the backdrop to this is the French colonial idea of islam noir, which is which is stereotyped as as passive and not generative um, of of knowledge and and expertise and and how attention to um the racialized aspect of Islamic knowledge is is now really being being foregrounded in this new scholarship.
0: Right, I think uh, you are quite right that the idea of Islam noir or Islam du terroir, you know, the notion of black Islam, which is different from Arab Islam, which is uh, uh, more syncretic, uh, which is syncretic, which is uh, less erudite, less warlike, more peaceful, all these stereotypes, you know, are uh, the legacy of the colonial library and of you know colonial writings about Islam in Africa, but it's not just uh, the French who had those uh, you know prejudices and, and 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 preconceived ideas. And I you know the anecdote that I tell in the beginning of Sheikh Ibrahim's, yes, you know. Being asked uh, where he where he lived in Egypt uh, because people couldn't possibly the people the person that he, the scholar that he met in uh, in in Mecca uh, couldn't possibly imagine that in Africa you know one could receive this uh, 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 you know uh, higher education Islamic education and uh, so so and this is very strange because. As you said, in the first part of the 80 volume, uh, entitled uh, History, uh, Movement, and Islamic Scholarship, uh, you know, there are tales of very prominent African scholars in uh, the centers of learning in the Middle East, right? So uh, therefore, far from being only junior partners, they contributed equally to the uh, production of Islamic knowledge. Uh, Much as Africans were going to study in centers of learning in in North Africa, uh, they were also teaching there. Just like like today, you know, there are some people who study in France or the United States and then are appointed in, you know, in in, in uh, American or or French or or, or British schools to, to to teach. So it it was very much the same. Africans who traveled to the Middle East, some of them settled there. They studied, but also they were very prominent teachers among them. And it was not just a one-way street. Scholars also and students from North Africa from Egypt traveled to Timbuktu or other centers of learning in Africa in order to study or, 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 or to teach also. So by no means, African scholars were uh, junior partners in this uh, relationship with, the, uh, with, the, with, with the other scholars. And I explained also that the, the history of uh, the presence of African Students in centers of learning in North Africa or Egypt is very old. And the first residence of students from West Africa, from Bornu in Egypt, in Al Azhar, known as Riwaq al Barnabi, was established in the 13th century, in the mid-13th century. And in the 18th century, among the uh, 25 residents, of students in Al-Azhar uh, Mosque College in Egypt, three were uh, residents of Africans, which and they had more than, than, than the Maghrib at that, at, that, at that time. Just to tell you that this is a very long story. Their presence in centers of learning all over the world is a very long story. And uh, uh, Africans have made uh, solid contributions to all fields of knowledge and some of the essays features in the volume, you know, constitute major contributions to astronomy, uh, chapter five, to political theory, uh, astronomy, chapter two, political theory, chapter five, philosophy, chapter six, jurisprudence, chapter seven. And these are just few. you know, uh, just to tell you that in fact, you know, the African uh, contribution, and uh, when I say African, I mean, more particularly Sub-Saharan African contribution to knowledge production, Islamic knowledge production is quite substantial.
1: And I think in parallel to this, this volume is um, deeply historical and gives us a sense of how far back these histories go. But at the same time, what's so interesting about it is it's very cutting edge. There is a chapter on e-Sufism and um, there's a lot of attention to the ways that uh, social media and ICT and other technologies are really changing uh, not just Islamic erudition but also the ways that academics are studying um, Islamic erudition.
0: Indeed, uh, I think you refer to the chapter on the new orality uh, by Diego Gonzalez. You know who explains how you know. Sufi communities in West Africa have reappropriated the new technologies of information and communication in order to spread their message and teachings in the entire world. Some sheikh are being in Senegal and uh, they are, you know, giving spiritual uh, initiation, initi- transmitting initiating knowledge to other people in the United States or in, in Malaysia. So uh, it's a uh, uh just fascinating how these communities that some anthropologists predicted you know a while ago that they will uh you know decline with modernity because they are uh, unfit to, to to modernity to urban life they are you know just uh, uh communities uh, adapted to a tribal or rural life how wrong they are so and and since you mentioned sufi communities you know it's a uh, The reach now, West African Sufi communities, the reach is global. And uh, in April uh, 2021, I hosted a conference on the Faida Tijani Sufi community in uh, uh, in the 21st century, uh, uh, you know, an articulation of global Islam, that was the title, it was hosted here at Harvard, and uh, the proceedings of that conference will soon be out. And it deals with, really with the global spread of uh, of this fijian tijania community, which used to be only West African, but with the uh, with the immigration of Africans, of West Africans, uh, Muslims in the West, in and they are present all over the uh, in in all Western countries with their immigration there, and with the development of these new technologies of. Uh, commun- information and, and communication these communities are flourishing, and their reach is really truly global now
1: uh, these these binaries are so brittle, and it's this whole volume is just uh, just another of these so many examples of how much more complexity complexity there is there is behind them. I think maybe the third kind of major dichotomy that the volume addresses is the um, supposed tension between orality and textuality. And this idea particularly that comes from the 1960s and 1970s that that African knowledge and local knowledges are are oral. This is something that really marginalizes or obfuscates so much of the history that you're talking about, about a deeply textual um, intellectual culture. But even more than that, not just this dichotomy, but how how textuality and orality um, work together. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the complexity between this relationship and how some of the contributions um, unpack it.
0: Right. Uh, uh, So in fact, uh, by documenting the literary cultures of Africa through the study of manuscripts and biographies of prominent uh, Muslim scholars, uh, you know, prominent scholars or pioneers in the field of Islamic scholarship in Africa, they have refuted the notion that Africa had no written literacy tradition, no literature, no, no written literary tradition prior to European colonial, colonial rule. However, uh, as you have rightly pointed out, they have failed to clarify the ways in which orality and textuality uh, interact in the transmission of knowledge. Uh, First of all, by no means uh, 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 even scholars who wrote, they also, also transmitted knowledge orally. Uh, so we some of the contributors, for example, show that uh, Lidwin Captain Kap, Lidwin and Alessandra Vianello in uh, uh, chapter 14, they document very well the ways in which Somali Sufi share. You know, compose religious didactic poems orally and in writing. The same thing, uh, you know, uh, is done by Oludamini Ogunaike, who also shows the importance of orality, who, who showed, who argued that substantial knowledge could be transmitted without leaving any written traces, uh, especially when dealing with initiating knowledge which means that scholars wrote, but they, they also transmitted uh, 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 important knowledge or, or orally. So on one hand, uh, textuality and orality have never been separated in the, this Islamic pedagogy. They are two faces of the same coin. Scholars wrote texts, but they they you know, transmitted uh, uh, knowledge orally on one hand. Therefore, the assumption that Textuality is necessarily superior to orality is problematic. It, it is one of the things that, you know, this volume, you know, challenged, showing that, you know, important uh, substantial knowledge can be transmitted without leaving any written traces for many different reasons, because they were initiating knowledge. Not everybody was supposed to know them. So therefore there were no written traces and only masters will teach them to only their trusted disciples. So uh, so so I think these are uh, very important issues addressed by the volume, the relationship between textuality and orality. To say that Africa had also a uh, you know a written uh, literary tradition doesn't mean that orality is superior, is inferior, or that those who participated in this uh, written tradition and who composed treaties, did not teach orally or that they did not compose orally uh, you know texts or you know poems that were not even written
1: you know it, it strikes me as so ironic that we discuss this right now as we're recording a podcast oral medium on a text right, right. you know even this exact institution is the interplay of orality and textuality in order to reach different types of audiences in different ways and um, with With different avenues in
0: indeed, indeed, indeed which yes.
1: I, was why I think the podcast is a wonderful uh, wonderful medium. I, I wanted to move towards the the final essay in the book, which is is really a powerful piece of writing by ibrahim Sa and if if um, if you're listening and and you're interested in a, a very succinct and effective um, you know analysis of the the ways of what he calls epistemic self-affirmation of Africa um, is unfolding. I really recommend uh, this essay. And I wondered about this phrase, the epistemic self-affirmation of Africa. It strikes me that this is a great deal what could describe your work. And and in addition to your work, how do you see uh, this project Moving forward um, in the field of Islamic scholarship and in the field of, of African studies.
0: Okay, so just uh, allow me to uh, re- remind you that Ibrima Sal, you know, who wrote the conclusion, was the former secretary, executive secretary of CODESRIA. CODESRIA is the Council for the Development of Social Research in Africa and Kodesria is one of the leading uh, African think tanks. And Kodesria was established by Samir, the Egyptian, economic Egyptian, Samir Amin, and some other prominent African intellectuals in order precisely to reclaim that epistemic sovereignty, in order to mobilize Africans across, you know, uh, colonial uh, uh, linguistic divide to think together on how to uh, offer solutions to the problems that Africa were facing problems uh, de- of development problems also of uh, epistemicide you know because uh, and, and 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 so they promoted uh, african research and african scholars and uh, and many Very prominent intellectuals, African intellectuals who are now serving in Western universities uh, uh, are actually associated with Codestria. They were they they were part of this effort of uh, challenging the global epistemic order and and struggling for an epistemic justice uh, by which Africa's uh, contribution to knowledge would be fully recognized and i think that the study of islamic erudition in africa you know uh, and the importance that it had for african intellectual history but also for islamic intellectual history is part of this uh, epistemic struggle and uh, some may uh, think of Arabic and Islam, as you know, a form of uh, imperialism because Islam came from the Arab, the Arabian uh, Peninsula, and uh, and 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 Arabic is, after all, a a language which was born in Arabia. But that language has such a long history in Africa, and Africa reappropriated it for itself, or Africans have reappropriated uh, the Arabic language for themselves, either in the using of the language itself or the using of the script in order to transcribe their language, that we uh, cannot understand fully African intellectual history without looking uh, at that uh, contribution. And uh, this research that uh, I am doing, and people like me on Islamic erudition in Africa and especially, you know, this volume, which uh, in which we worked for several years with a group of scholars uh, uh, trying to uh, identify w- what needs to be what what new uh, questions need to be uh, uh, addressed, you know, is part of that uh, uh, that effort for epistemic justice. And uh, if you just uh, 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 if allow me to mention that. One uh, part of the volume also deals with Ajami or the use of the African the Arabic script to transcribe African languages. It was widely used. It remains still uh, widely used to uh, not just to uh, uh, n- not just for illiterate audi- uh, audiences in Arabic or people who didn't know Arabic. But there was a very sophisticated uh, uh, literature and poetry in Ajami. In other words, Ajami was not used only to explain basic Islamic knowledge to uh, Africans people who didn't know Arabic. It was also, uh, you know, it's uh, an, an intellectual tradition uh, of itself. As some uh, several of the of the articles dealing with the very elaborate poetry composed by Senegalese by somalian by uh, uh kenyan etc so to say that ajami was 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 very important uh therefore and and again ajami means using the arabic script in order to write in african language so that's a very important tradition and uh, uh what we uh, try to do in this volume is to uh s- stress the importance of setting ajami not just as you know uh Something of the past, uh, you know, or not just focusing on, you know, uh, on old manuscripts, but also as a living language. Until now, people are using it; they are writing in in in, in Ajami, even for literate audiences.
1: Absolutely, and I, as a very ignorant person, was surprised to discover that there were eighty languages um, that had that had used Ajami script, and I wondered: Is there ongoing research to To discover
0: if there are more? Um. Well, 80 languages in Africa, you know, uh, with an attested usage of of the Arabic script. Yeah. So that's uh, uh, the findings of uh, of a book on the Arabic script in Africa published a few years ago. Yes, there are many scholars who are working on IGME. Even, you know, I have a doctoral student. Who just joined, you know, our doctoral program in order to study Mandinka Ajami? Professor Falun Gom at Boston University, you know, also study, uh, study Ajami. He studies Ajami. So yeah, there is a growing interest in Ajami in in understanding Ajami in in, in studying Ajami, especially Ajami, you know, uh, in the contemporary period because it remains very much of a living tradition.
1: So. Um... Even though we've been through this global pandemic and we are continuing to be part of this global pandemic, uh, you continue to be as prolific as ever. Uh, what are your current and future projects in addition to um, what you've already mentioned?
0: Uh, as part of the mission of my position, you know, I organize every year an Islam in Africa conference. And the volume islamic scholarship in africa injections in global context you know uh uh, there is a finding findings of the first two conference the first one was organized in uh, in uh, uh, february 2017 and uh, it was entitled the text knowledge and practice the meaning of scholarship in islamic africa and the second one was entitled uh, was organized in uh, uh in, in November 2017 uh you know a few months after the first which was organized in February 2017 and it uh, it was entitled Islamic uh, new directions in the study of Islamic scholarship in Africa then uh, the third conference was uh, entitled West Africa and the Maghreb and the fourth Africa Globalization and the Muslim world and findings of these two conferences also are impressed as a special issue of religion entitled africa globalization and the muslim world so and the fifth conference which was organized in uh in uh, in april twenty twenty one you know dealt with the Fida tijania conference a major group uh, major Uh, Articulation of global Islam, and also I am now editing the you know these papers uh, coming uh, that will be published soon, and uh, the next conference uh, will be on love poems for the Prophet and Muslim saints in Africa, you know composition, performance, and reception, and that's uh, what I am working on. So uh, not clear when, because um, ideally you know such conferences should be in person and the april one is the only one of the you know five mentioned conference that was organized online so we are hoping that it would be possible to organize it in person soon but uh, yeah so these are the ideas to try to you know uh, chart new directions in the field especially through conferences and also through lecture series because i organize a lecture series also and invite scholars who have just published new books in the field here on campus to Uh, present their works as well as advanced doctoral uh, students also to present their work so we try to uh, create a community of scholars working in the field in order to you know make a contribution and to chart new directions so much to
1: look forward to and and so much work to to come i wanted to close by Reading you back to yourself, I thought this phrase was really apropos of of our conversation here and and what the New Books Network tries to do. Um, in the epilogue of Beyond Timbuktu, you write, "Unlike the modern context in which students learn much from reading books alone in their rooms, in the classical period, the most reliable method of knowledge transmission was students hearing the author of the text or someone who had been taught the text." Uh, teach the lessons. So I thank you for having taught us some lessons. Um, speaking about your texts, and I look forward to um, when you'll be back to discuss future work.
0: Thank you very much, Elisa. I feel really very honored to be invited to this pod- podcast, and uh, also look forward to continuing the conversation when the other volumes will be out. And I hope that there will be interest in. You know, in a podcast, also in those volumes.
1: We're always here. Thank you very much, Professor Khan.
0: You're very welcome.